You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Well, Ben, you brought Oreos this week just to ensure that we continue to get those pissed-off comments on the website about how distracting it is when we eat during the show. Listen, people are just going to have to learn to deal with it, all right? I see this this big pack of double-stuffed Oreos at the gas station. What am I going to do, just walk by that? Just pretend I didn't see it? I can't do that. I'm glad you brought that up because you did, in fact, bring double-stuffed Oreos instead of just just the normal ones, which uh, caused me to wonder how an aspiring athlete such as yourself is doing on the diet. You must not have to make weight for the old jujitsu tournaments or anything here anytime soon. You know, the last time I went and did one of those jujitsu tournaments, I weighed in, they wrote my weight on my hand, uh, and uh, then it mattered not at all because there weren't that many dudes, so we just all had to wrestle each other. So if that's how it's going to be, damn it, I'm going to enjoy me some Oreos. So at this point, you are post-Brock Lesnar loss Frank Mir going on the I'm just going to get as huge as I can philosophy to try to combat these monsters that you got to roll with yeah. on the mats. He did a bunch of deadlifts. I'm going to eat some double stuff Oreos. That's pretty much the same thing. To each his own. I think. Well, Ben, we got to talk about this week's music on the co-main event podcast. This week, the music comes from listener Josh C and his pop band from Vancouver called All My Friends. Wait, uh, Vancouver, Washington or Vancouver, Canada? That was the question I had, but then I decided he must mean... Vancouver, Canada, A, because Vancouver, Canada is the Vancouver of record. Okay. And B, if it was Vancouver, Washington, he would just say the couve. Or he would claim to be from Portland. That's Yeah, that's probably more, a little bit or more Or he would say he was from just outside Portland. Uh, all my friends have a video that we'll link to at uh, comainevent.com when this episode gets posted, and also a Bandcamp page, allmyfriends.bandcamp.com, which we will also link to when this episode gets posted. Uh, three rounds, as usual this week for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Benson Henderson may have been the victim of an early stoppage on Saturday night, and somewhere, Frankie Edgar, Gilbert Melendez, and Josh Thompson are all just crying their eyes out for him. And in round number two, at UFC 177 this weekend, it's the rematch that should not be. And in round number three... Hey, remember when UFC 174 was briefly rumored to have sold fewer than 100,000 pay-per-view buys back in June? Well, we don't know if you've looked at this Saturday's pay-per-view card, but bad news, you guys. Uh All, All that plus, are you fucking kidding me, just saying stuff. And this week, the return of Sir Nigel Longstock in Master Tweet Theater. He's finally back from wherever it it was that, that he was. Yeah, hopefully New he goes York? back there soon. Yeah, I believe it was New York. Well, considering how his his uh, his schedule has gone lately, I assume he won't be around here too much longer. No, we got to get him while we can. First, though, like we always do about this time, 
Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from David Golden. He writes, over the weekend, Talis Latis continued his hot streak, picking up his seventh straight win by cold-clocking Frankie Cars and putting him on the mat. It's cool to see Latis have such a successful comeback, but I find myself wondering if he's doing it clean. I feel like a dick for thinking that way, but it seems like someone is pissing hot every other event. It's not even like Latis had some super terrible skid. Dude's only got four losses in his entire career, but it's so hard for me not to think that way these days. You guys feel good about Latis? Or do you, like me, question just about everyone making an impressive UFC return? You know, that is kind of a bummer that you have to start thinking that way about the sport, isn't it? I see it a lot more that people are doing it more just by eyeing up guys' physiques or uh, looking for the, the so-called HGH bump on their heads. Is uh, that is that a thing? The HGH bump? People people are telling me about it all the time on Twitter at the little ridge around their eyebrows. That's HGH messing with you. What? I don't know. Um, but yeah, it, that does kind of suck that you have to even think about it. I hadn't even really cons- considered that aspect with uh, Tallis Latis though, because like you said, he, he you know it's not like he had a ton of losses before. You know you, you, that could just be a guy figuring some stuff out in his career. Uh, getting his training down and, and coming back with a, a better mindset. And, you know, Frankie Cars was the toughest guy that he's faced, I think, since coming back uh, to the UFC. And it looked like for a while there that it was just going to be more of Frankie Cars doing what he do. Uh, and just as you were starting to settle in for that one, boom, down goes Frankie. Yeah, and it does seem a little bit uh, irresponsible to start just out of the blue speculating about whether some guys are doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing. Uh, Talos Latis does look pretty good getting off the bus these days. Uh, rocking a dope beard, which was the thing. Maybe, see, now here's the thing. If I were on PEDs, I would try to grow a sweet beard to distract people from how good the rest of me was looking. I see, I see. And maybe uh, take their attention away from your HGH bump. Yes, I would try to grow a beard over the top of the HGH bump so people would not see it. Okay. Uh, you shouldn't be giving this away, though, because now when you show up looking jacked with a huge-ass beard, everybody's going to know what's up. Uh, if I showed up looking jacked, everyone would know anyway. <laughs> okay. I think you make a, a solid point about Elise, or about Talos Letis' uh, uh, you know, previous losses. He got, he has this choke out to Matt Horwich back in 2010, the undisputed champion of the multiverse. Yeah, I think well, I was going to say that one took place in the multiverse, right? So that's not even fair. Oh, and that's the kind of thing, frankly, that could happen to anybody almost. Like Horwich is that kind of dude, like a guy that never really broke through, uh, never got on the ultimate fighter because he was too weird, right? Uh, and, but, and like, never. He also had some kind of like criminal conviction, <laughs> but yeah, also too weird. Uh, never, never really, you know, put together a win streak to like become a, a, a UFC player or anything like that. But Horwich was always a, a dude where like, if he manages to zombie walk through your offense and, and like, you know, get close enough to you to put you on the ground or, or even clinch with you, he, he could beat you. Like he was that kind of dude. Yeah. He's not going to go away easily. And you know, you're not just going to like convince him to stop fighting. So yeah, you're in for a night of work there. And I think he, he went, what, four rounds uh, with Matt Horowitz before finally getting choked out? I mean, that's yeah. that's a night of work right there. That's at the Powerhouse World Promotions War on the Mainland card. Yeah, that's uh, earning your money and probably not a whole lot of it. And then prior to that, he has a split decision loss to Alicio Sakara, and right before that was the UFC 97 loss to Anderson Silva, which was the screaming shits. So uh, <laughs> it sucks to get cut from the UFC after a split decision loss, but uh, he certainly hadn't endeared himself, I don't think, to the boss uh, 
with that UFC 97 fight against Anderson Silva, which I don't know if you heard, but it was the screaming shits. Why do you keep saying that? I don't, I don't know. It's fun to say. Okay. Let's move on. Second question this week comes to us from Eddie Pellegrino. He writes, how come more fighters aren't like Joby Sanchez in between rounds? During his fight against Wilson Reyes Saturday night, did I, how is that? Sure, fine. Uh, his coaches were giving him advice in the corner, telling him that his takedowns were there, and he responded that he didn't think they were. So his coach gave him a different advice. I rarely see such an exchange between a fighter and a coach like that, and it got me wondering why more fighters aren't like this. That's th an interesting question. That is an interesting question, and the only thing I can think of is that maybe it is because of the fighter-coach relationship. I think that's a big part of it. I also think, and that is something that they kind of teach you in a martial arts. I remember when I was in college and was going to this boxing gym for a while, and like the first time I ever really like put on boxing gloves and went out there and, and boxed some dude who I didn't know, like in the gym, you know, where we agreed to go a certain number of rounds and stuff. And it was kind of a shock to me because I just, I wasn't used to that at all. And at one point, like when I came back into the corner, uh, after the first round, uh, and my coach started to say something to me and I started to say something back. I, and he was just like, no, shut up, shut up. Don't talk. Just listen. And I was like, Oh, okay. And that seems to be just like the accepted conventional wisdom that the fighter just sits there and listens and doesn't talk. I mean, some of that, I think maybe you don't have a lot of time, right? Yeah. You've so only you, got a minute. Yeah. So you, you don't want to be in there having a conversation. Yeah. You can't, uh, you don't want things to break down. You don't want it just to be confusion and chaos in the corner over there. Cause then somebody will get slapped. <laughs> yeah. Like one of the other corner men will get yeah. slapped. And maybe one of his two hats will fall off. And that happens. <laughs> but also some Sometimes you see, though, where it ends up that way anyway because you got, you know, more than one corner man in there. And if, if they're not all, you know, like the way the Greg Jackson camp does it where one person will talk, you know, Greg will talk first and then he'll say, he'll point to, you know, Winkle John or something and say, now you go. Um, that kind of thing where everybody clearly knows, like, when it's their turn to talk. So it's not just a bunch of people yelling at you. But you also see sometimes, I think it was maybe in that, uh, uh, what's the, the, the guy, Clay, uh, are we talking about Clay, Clay Collard? Collard? I think Cassius when, Clay Collard? I think when he came back to his corner after the first round and getting, you know, smacked all over the place by Max Holloway, um, and his corner at first was just like, breathe, breathe. And it was like, you don't know what to say to him, do you? Like, you, you, you're kind of at a loss here. Didn't that, like, I would chalk this up to youthful exuberance, but didn't that kid also, like, try to start a conversation kind of with his cornerman in between rounds? Say, like, he came back and sat down on the stool, and he's like, oh, he, he hit me. He caught me a couple times. And But he sounded super drunk when he was doing it, too. I think what he was trying to say was that, you know, the guy caught him a couple times but doesn't hit that hard. Right, yeah. And we're like, well, you're slurring your words. So it kind of sounds like maybe he does hit kind of hard. Uh, but, yeah, that, I mean, I guess – it, it, I could see how it would be helpful for the guy to be telling the, the coach, here's what I'm seeing in there and like what I'm feeling. And so then the coach could give him some advice to to work with that. But at the same time, I mean, I, I don't know. I could see that how that could go really wrong for a lot of people in yeah. a lot of different ways. And level of fighter and relationship with coach, I think, would have a lot to do with it. Like if you're a, uh, you know, a, a big time veteran, a guy that's been around, a guy who's known as, as a – as a, a smart fighter, a cerebral fighter, I would assume that if you have a coach that you have a good relationship with, you can, you could go back there and, and, you know, share some things during the corner. Whereas like if you're Cassius Clay Collard and you're like 
15 years old. You've been doing this for like 10 minutes. Like maybe your, your, your coach would just rather you don't tell him how it's going. And, and he just tells you what, what's, what he sees, what's going on. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's one thing I've heard from a bunch of different coaches is that when it comes to corner advice, just in general, a lot that you have to know your fighter. A lot depends on what that particular fighter needs. Some people need you to, to yell in their face and slap one of the other corner men. And some people need you to tell them to find their waterfall. Next question this week comes to us from Reese. Do you remember when uh, Greg Jackson told George St. Pierre he didn't care about his groin? I do remember. Was that, that UFC 100? Yes, it was. Against, against uh, Tiago Alves. Yeah, Tiago Alves. I don't care about your groin right now, George. That's right. The next question comes from But one Reese. assumes he, he cared about the groin later. Yeah, no. And in the locker room, when, when somebody had to go get some ice for GSP's groin, I'm sure they had a heart-to-heart. Yeah. Want to know how the groin was yeah. after business was had been conducted. Listen, what I said out there... About the groin. <laughs> George, what I said out there about your groin, it was just the heat of battle. It was the heat of the moment. <laughs> Next question this week comes to us from Reese Burgess. He writes, Jordan Meehan's father, also a fighter, was barred from Fight Night 49 for the alleged sexual battery of a hotel housekeeper. Assuming that the allegations are true, do these reprehensible... Al- okay. Well, <laughs> We're just going to assume they're true. these reprehensible acts of people associated with MMA like me, Mayan, uh, or Lee Mayan, that, that name is hard to say, frankly, uh, War Machine and Josh Crispy hurt MMA more than similar acts of people associated with other sports because M- MMA is regarded by some as a barbaric sport? Well, ju- just in case anyone was wondering if we were going to get away from the horror... That has been, frankly, shadowing this sport like a like a goddamn evil twin or something uh, this past weekend. We did get this story about Lee Mayan, uh, Jordan Mayan's father, who is, frankly, a uh, a well-known promoter in Alberta, where yeah. those guys are from. And uh, the details of the incident at this point are, are extremely scarce. We don't really know anything about it. So I feel like it's a little bit... Uh, it's asking a lot to assume that the allegations are true. Um, this isn't a war machine type scenario, no. I don't think, where a dude I mean, has a, to an that, established history well, where there's photos of the of the victim and statements from the victim, et cetera, et cetera. This is a thing where uh, Lee Mayan got arrested uh, in Tulsa and bailed out the next day, and we still don't really have any information about what actually happened. Uh, so it's a little bit. Uh, irresponsible maybe to just assume guilt at the same time like i said this was this was like the third story that we've seen like this in the last month and the very fact that the story was out there and circulating did make me go like a really sad johnny Hendricks voice when i saw it oh, uh, man. because it did feel like just another like kick in the gut for the sport that had already had a pretty terrible month in terms of uh violence outside the cage yeah and just and Violence towards women outside the case for the, for the most part. Uh, the weird thing to me was that uh, no mention of this during the fight, like they're on the broadcast. Uh, well, like, let's not. Well, we can say weird, but let's not like say unexpected. Okay, not unexpected. But uh, one of the things that that I wrote about uh, in kind of my post fight summation was like, imagine a situation where Fox is showing an NFL game and like the defensive coordinator was arrested the day before and is not there with the team. Uh, I mean, that's going to get mentioned, you yeah. know, uh, and, well, that's and as because well as you, should. You have an additional layer of separation in a, in a Fox NFL broadcast because the deal that Fox has with with the NFL doesn't really allow the NFL to control the, the production, right? Whereas the UFC and Fox have a much closer relationship. And in fact, you know, we heard for years that one of the reasons the UFC didn't get in bed earlier with a different broadcast partner was that uh, 
the owners were really, really insistent on controlling their own production values, which is why, you know, why you continue to see Mike Goldberg and Joe Rogan out there instead of people who normally work for Fox. It's why, uh, you know, you have a, a, a broadcast desk staffed with UFC employees for the most part. Uh, uh, and then usually one Fox person will be there. And so you don't really have that. Uh, additional layer of separation. And if you had a, a regular UFC like pay-per-view card, uh, uh, a production that was just, you know, a UFC production from start to finish, I, I don't think there's any way in hell that they would talk about this kind of stuff because they've been ignoring uh, negative stories for years during their broadcast. So, you know, it's not surprising that they would do the same thing with Fox. I guess it's not surprising, but uh, it does, like... It got me thinking because you're right about the, the USC's insistence on control over broadcast and just control over the product in general, which I think at one point was a really good and necessary thing. I mean, back when uh, MMA was a little bit more of a, a live wire issue and you had to be really careful about how the sport is perceived uh, and you know what ways you want to present it and, and, and what ways you don't. That that insistence on control really allowed the UFC to to make sure it knew what it was doing all along the way. And I mean, working for the IFL, I saw what happened when they didn't have that. When they did that that battleground show and one of the first shows, they really kind of tried to play up and sensationalize the violence um, and went over horribly. And they didn't. The, the people who were responsible for putting together the TV show didn't really understand why that was the case. They thought like, okay, I thought people were super into this violent sport and didn't quite understand that the MMA fans' sensitivity to, to their perception of the sport. Uh, and so I could see why that, that insistence on control was necessary and really helpful. But I think now it's kind of swung too far. Like, the UFC is really heavy-handed with a lot of that stuff, really overprotective uh, in those ways. And, I mean, if you want this to feel like a real sport, then you need to, to have stuff like that. You can't, it can't be this thing where it just feels like... You know, you're, you're living under a dictatorship where they're going to try and censor the news for you. I mean, I'm not saying you really want to play that up too much or, or make a big deal out of uh, Jordan Meehan's father not being there. But, I mean, he corners his son. He's been his coach since he was a kid. Played a big role in his career. You know, having him arrested the day before the fight and not be in the corner on fight night. You know, that's a... That's a real thing. That's a real thing to talk about. Even just, uh, even if you're, you're, you don't want to talk about the, the negativity that it might associate with the sport. As far as just talking about the fight itself and the fighters involved, I mean, you kind of have to make a conscious decision not to mention that stuff. And that, I think, makes it seem weird. I mean, to the people who don't know, they won't, they won't notice that. But everybody else, then it looks like you're trying to hide something, like you feel embarrassed of it, and you shouldn't. I mean, it doesn't really, it should not reflect on the UFC or on MMA that one person did allegedly, you know, did something like that. Uh, the, the only time it d does reflect on you is when you're a sc you're scared of it and you're trying to pretend it didn't happen. Yeah, I know that, that's all valid stuff. I agree with all that. It's, you know, we just know that for a long time now they, they've had a precedent of not talking about that stuff on the broadcast for one reason or another, but I would totally agree that, and we talk about this a lot on the podcast, but the, 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 the new UFC post Fox deal, which it was three years old uh, last week, they signed their their deal with Fox three years ago last Jesus, week. Really? Yeah. Where's the time going, Chad? <laughs> yeah, good question. How did we get so old? Uh, the UFC has, is doing this weird thing now where it's walking a fine line and positioning in it positioning itself, uh, you know, as media at some yes. sometimes, which is a, a weird and dangerous thing to do. Uh, and I think for all the reasons that you just brought up. Uh, but you know, in terms of the UFC broadcast, they've been they've been doing that for a long time. So while. Uh, well, a little bit weird, and I think you make a lot of good points. Also, not totally unexpected. And plus, man, Jordan Meehan wasn't sweating it anyway. 
Apparently you not. Hear him at the press conference afterwards. No, nah, man, it didn't affect his preparations. Yeah, you're not going to get inside that guy's head too easily. Yeah, that, and he's a professional athlete, so he's just going to lie about that when you ask him. <laughs> uh, last question this week comes from us from Jason Eugene. He writes, Michael Bisping went out and did the damn thing, as you dudes would say, against Kung Lee. So what does it all mean, and what now? Uh, so, yeah, this was kind of a weird one where uh, Michael Bisping has this fight on Fight Pass in the middle of the morning here at, in the One True Time Zone in Macau. Macau! Against did you get up and watch this one? Kung Lee. No, I did not. Come on. Uh, but it's, it's, a, you know, it's a fight that you feel like Michael Bisping should win. It's a fight that Michael Bisping needs to win. And then he kind of goes out there and does exactly what you think Michael Bisping should do to a guy like Kung Lee. Kind of batters him. Pillar to post stops him in what the fourth round. Yeah. Uh, and it's the kind of thing where I'm not sure we learned anything about Michael Bisping. I'm not sure that it, it, uh, means anything really for Michael Bisping, except that it's better than the alternative. He won a, a fight he pretty much had to win. Uh, and now we're, we're probably going to get into him and, and Luke Rockhold calling each other names for eight months before they finally fight. I'm mad at that. That, that seems like a fine matchup. I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it means absolutely nothing. I mean, Kung Lee is still a tough dude. We saw him, you know, knock out. Uh, Rich Franklin uh, a couple years ago, uh, you know, he can still come out there and surprise you if you're not ready for him. Uh, but, you know, I think it was one of those fights where, like you said, he came into it and it was a must win. And then once he has Kung Lee clearly pretty hurt, you know, bleeding out of all, all kinds of all types all of blood, types of fucking blood coming out of his head, yeah, all types of blood coming out of his head. And then you're thinking, OK, is this going to be another Bisping fight where he can't put the guy away unless he pokes him in the eye? You know, is, is he is he going to be able to finish this one? And then he does. You know, finishes it just kind of like by volume, but you know, digging to the body, throwing that knee, dropping Kung Lee, and, and putting him away. I mean, that's that's what he had to do there. Uh, I, I think that there's you can say like, okay, it wasn't the toughest opponent, but you can't really take anything away from Bisping there. I mean, he went out there. Uh, and just absolutely smashed a, a pretty tough fighter. Granted, one uh, a little past his expiration date, maybe. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I think that that does prove that Michael Bisping is still he's still that same guy, still like always kind of hanging around in the middle of the middleweight division, always in the conversation, even if he can never quite get to that top contender spot. Yeah, maybe the thing that he proved is that he is that still that same guy, and that that was something that we needed to see after. Uh after he's had his troubles here in the recent past. Uh, all, all said and done, though, it didn't it didn't mean a ton to me. Uh, you know, I got up at, at, at 4 a.m. to watch this thing. That's you know awesome, that? dude. No, it's not. I well, would print you out a certificate of achievement after we're done here. Okay. So I have to wait until after then? You want me to do it right now? Let's take a break and you can print it out. Well, that's it's pretty good timing because that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. What else can they do while they're there, Ben? They could sign up for the Breakfast of Champions email newsletter, which comes out uh, every Friday, and it's free and tons of fucking laughs. And frankly, if you haven't signed up for it yet, you're kind of a jerk. Yeah. And uh, if you think we're going to print you out a certificate of achievement when you haven't even signed up for that, think again. That's right. No certificate of achievement for you. Just a big I empty space on your wall where that certificate ought to be. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Well, Ben, I hope that you didn't think that we were going to get in and out of a Benson Henderson fight without a little controversy. Oh, no. Because uh, we got a little spoiled during that Rustam Habilov fight where, uh, you know, pretty clean cut, pretty clear cut uh, choke out victory for Ben Henderson. Everybody could feel good about it and go home and read their Bibles. Not so much this time as uh, Ben Henderson goes out there and uh, gets knocked out by Rafael Dos Anjos in two minutes and 31 seconds of the very first round at the uh, BOK Center in beautiful Tulsa, Oklahoma. The Bach? Granddaddy of them all? BOK? You BOK. The the Bach Center? Okay, first of all, thoughts on the stoppage. Seemed a little early to me. It seemed early to me, too, and uh, I want to read Benson Henderson's quote about it because I think it's kind of awesome because... It's an it's a an instance of Ben Henderson clearly trying to take the high road, but you can also tell that his extremely detailed account of events leading up to the stoppage is sort of the fighter's version of of implying like I got a raw deal here because I was fine. Here's yeah. the quote. It was a flash knockout. You know, they happen. You know, the flash knockout. I remember dropping my back in the fence and I was like, oh, damn, that didn't look good at all. That was a bad thing right there. I wanted to latch on to a single leg, push him up against, you know, turn him, push him up against the cage, hopefully take a couple shots to the back of the head, let the cobwebs clear a little bit, you know, take some time and then start working from there. But as soon as I start to come around and go on that single leg, Big John does his job. So... You know, he's he's kind of like saying he's cool with the stoppage, but also saying he's not cool with the stoppage. He's not quite doing the Gilbert Ivel why I always getting fucked man thing. Uh, but he's also, you know, it's the kind of stoppage equivalent of like not to make excuses, but uh, and yeah, I don't know. I think that he has a, a pretty legitimate claim. I mean, it is one of those things where. When you get dropped by one big punch that just takes you off your feet, you can see Big John kind of rush in to get a closer look right at that moment. I mean, when that happens first, that that visual forces the ref like on the the precipice of making a decision there. And then if you're not immediately back in it, I mean, he did kind of try and turn to his side and try to get over there, and that's when uh, RDA was kind of teeing off a little bit. And but those didn't seem like they were really hammered him too bad i mean he seemed yeah, kind of clear eyed he only hit him one time really after the uh after the initial left hook that uh that, that dropped him and i agree with you that you know when you when you go down like a sack of potatoes when you just when you do the dead man drop onto the canvas like that'll get you stopped yeah uh, when you look knocked out that'll that'll get you stopped so in in you know i can definitely see where Big John McCarthy is coming from, and clearly a ref with a long history and a guy who uh, is regarded as a super good ref and doesn't do a lot of really make a lot of real high profile mistakes. Did seem like he ran in, you know, a, a second or two early this time. Uh, but at the same time, when you see Ben Henderson go down like that, you understand why he does it. But even though Ben Henderson looked a little starry eyed when it was over, he did pass the what the fuck test. He did. Uh, he stood right up and, and, uh, was quite, uh, ostentatious about his uh, demonstrations of of you know being okay yeah and then even afterwards what they're they're announcing the the official decision kind of thing uh you can see his coach john crouch there in the background having a what looked to be a frustrated conversation with big john mccarthy yeah uh and you know i totally understand why those guys are going to be upset about that i mean i also think though it creates a situation that's a kind of just accidental 
but unavoidable screw job for Rafael Dos Anjos because this should be an awesome moment, right? Like he goes out there, fights a former UFC lightweight champion. I think the the number one ranked guy according to the UFC's own rankings, uh, and puts him away in the first round. What else can you ask for? And yet, you know, we're not, it's not like the attention totally shifted over in his direction the way you would think that it would happen. He still seems to be suffering from that same problem we were talking about before where there's just nothing really to latch onto, uh, for people to feel like they know that guy. This thing happens and still he's not the person we're talking about at the end of it. I did read, you know, he's the guy that has the big, uh, squid tattoo on his arm though. So now if you were trying to like be able to tell him apart from like Gleason Tebow, Squid tattoo. Oh, like, like I have any trouble telling Gleason Tebow. <laughs> I was going to, this was the question that I wanted to bring up. I think you just brought it up. Is the world ready for Rafael Dos Anjos, serious lightweight contender? Because, uh, you know, he, he had the loss to Habib Nurmagomedov back, back in April, but before that had torn off five or six wins in a row. Now he's won two more straight since that against Jason High and uh, now Benson Henderson, the former lightweight champion and, and number one ranked contender. So like you said, at this point, the numbers tell us that we pretty much have to take this guy seriously as a potential number one contender. But, you know, there's just not a lot for us to grab onto there since we don't really know a lot about the guy. Uh, in the, and then when he and Benson Henderson get on the mic and have dueling, uh, I can do all things through Christ who who – lifts what does he say i can do all things through christ who strengthens me so yes they have the, they the do line. they do dueling christ interviews there uh it's not like he's given us a lot to really sink our hooks into and and, and latch onto i do think though that uh if that's a thing that you're worried about the ufc is kind of lucked into a pretty good situation right now because uh you know that uh, anthony pettis and and gilbert melendez are going to about to host this tough season 20 uh which starts in early September and they're not going to fight. We don't think until, until December. And then you've got the, uh, Eddie Alvarez, Donald Cerrone fight recently announced for UFC 178. I think if, if Eddie Alvarez comes out and wins that, you can put him straight into a number one contender situation. Kind of no questions asked. I don't know that anyone would have a huge problem with that. Uh, unless your name actually is Rafael Dos Anjos or Habib Nurmagomedov and you're, you return from your, from your knee injury. So, this was a good, big, high-profile win for for Dos Anjos, but uh, it's not like he's going to get fast-forwarded into a title shot. He's he's going to have to win at least one more fight, right? Yeah, and it's kind of a tough situation over there at lightweight right now. And Danny Downs and I were talking about this a little bit in our trading shots, where uh, because the the date for the next lightweight title fight is already set and is a few months away still, and then you got Eddie Alvarez coming over to the UFC to to add a little something extra to the mix. It's like whatever you do now. Uh, the best you can do is kind of hope to keep yourself within striking distance of, of the, the contender spot. Um, cause it's not really up for grabs right now. And the way, since we have so many good lightweights, uh, and we have so much stuff happening in that division, whatever you do in August is going to be pretty well forgotten by the time, uh, the, the next spot opens up there at the top, uh, regardless of, of how that fight goes. I mean, people are going to forget about that stuff real quick. So settle in. Settle in and get ready to, to, to work and, and, and make your money because you're not going to be able to earn a title shot in that division just on, on, on one good night, no matter what you do. And for Ben Henderson, uh, we knew that he had kind of an uphill climb in front of him to try to get back to true contender status, even though, uh, he was ranked the number one, uh, contender to Anthony Pettis' title officially on the rankings heading into this fight. Uh, now it would seem like his, his road has gotten even longer. 
Uh, he's still obviously a, a big time player in the division, but I don't know if he can continue to, uh, to gimmick himself as the, as the, the guy you need to come see if you want to fight for the title. Uh, he's dropped from first to fourth in the light, lightweight rankings with Gilbert Melendez, Nurmagomedov, and, and Dos Anjos in front of him. All, clearly all is not lost for Ben Henderson, but it does seem like you come out and you get knocked out in the first round. Even if you're going to dispute the stoppage a little bit, uh, you're going to have an even longer road now looking forward. Yeah, that is kind of rough for him. Uh, and, you know, I guess he seems to have like a pretty good attitude about it, at least right now. And it's going to be one of those things where, you know how fighters are to begin with, like it's a lot of them, even when they have been absolutely beat the hell up, can convince themselves that they've never been beaten. Uh, so I don't think he's going to be dwelling over this one, uh, in the gym too bad. But, it, you know, it did kind of show, I think, though, that, uh, there's a little more vulnerability in his game than maybe we thought before. That it seemed like, okay, Anthony Pettis can beat him and everybody else is going to be in a long, hard slog with him one way or another. Uh, and you're probably going to the judges and, and going to hope to have one go your way. And this one showed a guy, uh, kind of being patient at first and then really jumping on his openings and, and, and not being afraid to open up and go after him a little more. And it paid off. I mean, it makes you wonder if that's the kind of thing where you just needed somebody else to kind of show you the blueprint on it and, uh, might force him to, to reevaluate depending on how people come at him from here on out. Yeah. And was this a situation where Ben Henderson got caught trying to be more aggressive? Because, you know, we talked, I think last week about how, we everyone felt like he needed to show more urgency and get some stoppages in order to to prove that he was a new man and that he deserved another shot at Anthony Pettis, assuming Pettis beat Gilbert Melendez at the end of the year, which is kind of a big if. But, uh, you know, that's where we're at right now, I guess. Uh, but because he came out in this in this Dos Anjos fight and both guys were, were throwing murder balls at each other. They both looked like they were uh, they were looking for the stoppage and then. Uh, you know, he gets caught a little bit. I don't, you know, with the, the, the jumping knee while he's shooting for a takedown and, and then dropped with the, uh, dropped with the left hook. Can any of this be thrown at the feet of that call for urgency? I don't know. I don't know how much we can say about that, but I, it does seem like, uh, you're starting to see some of those tendencies now repeat themselves. And, and he saw it some in the Anthony Pettis fight, uh, and he, some here where, if things aren't going well for him uh, on the feet, he's pretty quick to to think takedown right away, uh, and you know that's how you know, Anthony Pettis was was hurting him with kicks on the feet. He took him down and got armbarred pretty much immediately after getting down there. And here's one where uh, things started to turn against him, and he started looking for the takedown and couldn't quite get it. And in in looking for it, uh, gave Rafael dos Anjos some some openings there. So I don't know. I mean, that might be something for him to go back and take a look at uh, if he's maybe become a little too reliant on that as kind of a backup plan whenever things aren't working on the feet. I mean, I'm interested to see what he does from here on out, though. I mean, I think that. Uh, we complained before that, you know, he wasn't interesting enough or that he was just kind of awkward and, and don't know what to make of the guy. Seeing how he comes back from something like this, uh, I think will be really interesting. Uh, depending on, on who they book him against next, uh, I can see myself being, being more intrigued than usual for the next Benson Henderson fight. And final thought, I guess, also interesting, like we said, to see what's going to happen to Dos Anjos. Um, he's going to have to take at least one more fight. And now just looking at the rankings, uh, you know, he's already lost to Nurmagomedov. Melendez and Pettis are booked against each other. He just beat Benson Henderson. Donald Cerrone is booked against Eddie Alvarez. And that means that pretty much the only other guys on the list are guys 
who are way behind Rafael Dos Anjos in the rankings, but nonetheless dangerous dudes. Somebody like Josh Thompson, Bobby Green, Jim Miller, Miles Jury, Michael Johnson. That's the, that's the, the rest of your top 10. So not only are you going to have to fight a guy who might feel like a step back for you, considering you just knocked out Benson Henderson, but you're going to have to fight another dangerous dude who's looking to climb up those rankings. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Uh, anyway, that's going to do it for round number one, though. Uh, Sir Nigel Longstock's here. He's going to come in and lead us in another rendition of Master Tweet Theater. It'll be interesting to for us to find out exactly what the hell he's been up to. That starts right now. Well, it's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am rested and ready. Yeah, we see you're back from uh, yet more travels. Uh, you're a busy man these days. Oh, yes. I took an extended tour in New York City where I appeared nightly for a period of two weeks. Well, uh, and they finally uh, let you out of there, huh? Was the bail pretty steep, or did you did you have to get your lawyer on the case? You know, they just left the door open. It was almost as if they did not wish to keep me. <laughs> almost. Well, for those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel's going to read us off some tweets from some people in the MMA sphere, and Chad and I are going to try and guess who those tweeters are. Uh, do we have a theme this week? Uh, yes, sir, we do. The theme is, tell us about yourself, inadvertently. <laughs> well, I really look forward to this one. I guess uh, whenever you're ready, hit us with the first one. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. Tweet the first. I like Hong Kong way better. People there were so helpful and nice, but people slash workers in Macau fucking suck dick. Rude ass fuckers. Just saying. Huh. Uh, you know, you know what this feels like to me. I, I mean, I've got my own ideas, but this feels like it might be a Bisping. Exactly, and I feel exactly like I could, what I was going to say. I could almost see Sir Nigel perhaps the physical strain of not doing his Bisping impression. Uh, that's my guess. Yeah, I'm going to go Bisping too. Uh, and maybe more hoping than actually confident just because I want to hear this particular tweet read in the Bisping voice. Oh, you're asking for trouble. Sir Nigel? A fine guest grounded in the dream of audience listeners everywhere but wrong. Oh. It is Kendall Grove. Huh. Kendall Grove, not not pleased with the workers in Macau, huh? No, no, not pleased at all. Although I will say the assonance of the phrase of fucking suck dick rude ass fuckers would be wonderful in the Bisping voice. <laughs> yes, it would. It really would. Mm, so many vowels to shift. <laughs> let, us, let us continue. Tweet the second. Getting so burned on futures lately. Had Dustin Johnson to win PGA and Rafael Nadal to... U.S. Open, both withdrew pre-tourney. Dump City. How the hell is that one tweet? I don't know. It's long. It is really long. Uh, and what the hell are we talking about here, Chad? Uh, it sounds like somebody who's betting on golf. What the fuck? Who and the what? U.S. Open. So a rich person gambling, apparently. Um, you got any guesses here? Um, I don't know a lot of gamblers on, on the Twitters. Uh, Joey Odessa, I guess. Odds maker extraordinaire? Well, if I thought that Sir Nigel had any idea who that was, I might be tempted there. And I would otherwise be tempted to say, 
uh, Rich Franklin, although I would think that maybe his religious views might bar him from getting super into gambling. Uh, so, therefore, I'm going to go with the other Rich Franklin, Randy Couture. Both fine guesses. I know who fucking Joey Odessa is. Both wrong. It is John Anik. Oh! Burned on futures, which means losing money gambling. <laughs> we probably should have got that one. Yeah, that is an, an actual, uh, like, really interesting way to phrase that, burned on futures. It's like if you tell your wife that you can't make the mortgage payment this month because you got burned on futures. An investment didn't quite pan out. <laughs> Come on, Anik. <laughs> Tweet the third. Lol, it's funny when people use a light year in reference to time instead of distance. <laughs> so we started that off with a lol, huh? Lol. Chad? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, somebody trying to show off how smart they are. You, you go first. Speaking of people who want to show off how smart they are. Uh, Joe Benavides? He's a smart guy, and he might lol at that. Uh, that's a good guess. God, I really have no idea. Um, I'm going to go Josh Barnett. Okay, that's not bad. Two fine guesses, both smart fellers from you fart smellers, and both wrong! It is Michael Mayday McDonald. Okay. We are getting into some new entrants. Yeah, we are. Uh, also, is it me, or does it seem more dickish if you know it's Michael McDonald? Kind of, but like, have you ever talked to Michael McDonald? He's just like so religious and, and, and pure of heart that he probably actually is lolling. <laughs> well, as long, as long as there's a genuine lol in there, I'll That's accept the it. That's the raciest thing he is allowed to consider funny by his <laughs> church. <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. Quote, it's all about confidence. you got to have confidence and believe in yourself. End quote. Bisping. So what you're saying here is that somebody tweeted a quote attributed to Michael Bisping. That is correct, sir. But whom? Who would do such a thing, Chad? I'm going to go Michael Bisping here, quoting himself. That's just a guess, but... Whoa, that would be one hell of a move there. I'm going to go Luke Rockhold, uh, as they say, taking the piss out of Michael Bisping. Both fine guesses, only one correct. It is Michael Bisping. Yes. Retweeting a person who quoted him. Oh, you didn't mention that it was a retweet. No, well, I didn't notice it first. You fucked me. You fucked still, me is what you did. It's an Ouroboros scenario. All right, go ahead and read it in the, the accent. You know you want to. It's all about confidence. You gotta have confidence and believe in yourself. Quote, best bang. <laughs> God damn you. God damn it. I'm so played to make my comeback against Kung Lai. <laughs> all right, let's just finish this thing off. <clears throat> tweet the fifth. Opportunity rarely knocks on your door. Knock rather on opportunity's door. Kick it down if you haffa. Can you spell that at the end there? Uh, yes. Kick it down if you haffa. Y-A space H-A-F-A. Huh. That's weird. That makes it sound like Conor McGregor? Uh. <laughs> you think that he tweets as he... Yeah. <laughs> I assume he... In his voice. Yeah. Could this be the poet Philip Baroni showing up late in Master Sweet Theater right at the end? Is that your guess, the poet Philip Baroni? Ah, uh, boy, I'm gonna be really mad if it's Conor McGregor, but yeah, I'm gonna go poet Philip Baroni. Or wait, did he get banned along with War Machine? I think it's just War Machine okay. got banned. 
I don't think we're going to tar Philip Brony with the well, same brush fired. there. Well, yeah, but that might have been for performance-related reasons. Unless he committed felicy, felony assault without my noticing, Phil Baroni is still eligible for Master Tweet Data. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say this sounds like uh, an inspiring uh, tweet. Maybe I'm going to go this time, Rich Franklin. Hmm. Well, Chad's streak continues. It is the poet Philip Baroni. <sighs> well, I guess, Chad, you can you can feel good about that one if you have a... Two for five. <laughs> Not bad. It was a challenging run. It was. Week. It was a challenging one this week. Uh, I guess that's it for Master Tweet Theater. So, Nigel, what you got going on? You know, it's funny you should ask. I've just wrapped shooting on a very interesting project about a Hollywood starlet whose substance abuse problems force her to move in with her mother. And after she overdoses on drugs, she comes back to life and moves in with her mother again. I see. And what's it called? Postcards from the Edge of Tomorrow. And what role do you play? Uh, I play the edge, sir. <laughs> well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Chad, I don't know what you were thinking on May 24th, 2014, as T.J. Dillashaw knocked out Henan Barrow midway through the fifth and final round to claim the UFC Bantamweight Championship. But you know what I was thinking? Man, I hope they, they run it right back. Let's do this one right away again. No, actually, I wasn't thinking that. No one was thinking that. And yet here we are, immediate rematch. What the hell, man? Yeah, I was going to go go cool Keith on you there, say I don't believe you. Yeah, and you'd be right. You would be right, sir, to cast aspersions on, on, on a statement like that. No one was thinking that. Before and yet, we do, we're before, doing it. Before we go any further, let's just make a point to mention Hanan do Nascimento Mota Pagado. Nailed it. And Tyler Jeffrey Dillashaw. Doing it again, brother. A second time around. So this, like there's no... I, unless you're going to give an immediate rematch to every single UFC champion who ever loses his title, there's pretty much no good explanation for why Henan Barrow gets this immediate rematch against TJ Dillashaw because it's not like it was a fluke. It was the, it was a an, an outcome and a, a turn of events that nobody expected. But TJ Dillashaw beat Henan Barrow's ass pretty much <laughs> yes, straight up for what four plus rounds and then stopped him so it's not like they went to decision it was basically the most dominating thing that you can do to a guy in an mma fight just beat the shit out of him for 20 minutes and then get the referee stoppage so no one can even complain that you went to decision uh so considering that now we're staring down the barrel of this immediate rematch i gotta wonder is the only reason that we're doing this because the UFC is desperate for main events. Yeah, kind of. And they wanted to turn around and, and get another fight, and there wasn't anybody that really screamed at you that that fight had to be made. So why not do this one again? Okay, if I'm going to play devil's advocate here and try to make an argument for why you would say that you wanted to see this one again right away, you could say, and this is not something that a promoter could really use as justification, but looking at the fight kind of objectively, you could say, 
TJ Dillashaw came out there and fought in a style that I don't think anybody was really expecting out of him. Like that kind of Dominic Cruz-like style. Uh, we hadn't really seen that too much out of Dillashaw. It's probably not what Henan Burrell was expecting. Seems like a completely different and way better TJ Dillashaw. Drops in with that one big punch right away, and it seems like maybe Burrell never really gets the cobwebs cleared. He said after that that he kind of woke up in the locker room, didn't really remember the rest of the fight. Uh, so you could argue, if you really wanted to, that, okay, that aspect of it might have been, if not flukish, then at least the kind of thing with, okay, well, let's see what happens if we do it again. If, if, if Brow goes in there and knowing a little better what to expect, if he can manage not to get his bell rung right off the bat, could it be a different kind of fight? I mean, that, that aspect of it, I think, is an interesting question. I just don't know if it's interesting enough to get anybody to pay 60 goddamn bucks to see this thing right now. So in order to justify that reasoning, you're essentially doing an, a playground do-over because we weren't ready, right? Like if someone gets a touchdown pass in, in your touch football game, you call a do-over because someone's mom showed up and someone was off the field getting a juice box. Like that's what we're doing. Yeah, one of the dudes had a problem with the zipper on his jacket and everybody else on the team had gathered around to help. Uh, we weren't ready for the kickoff. Come on, guys. Do-over. That's what we're doing. Because when I hear you describe that, and I know that you're not necessarily advocating that as your point of view, but when I hear you describing that, that to me just sounds like another way that TJ Dillashaw was better than Hendon Burrell. Like, not only did he beat him up for four plus rounds, he outfoxed him too. He came in with a better game plan. And I know came, you love a good outfoxing. Oh, I, I love to see somebody get outfoxed. Uh, you see, he came in with a better game plan, fought in a style the champion wasn't ready for, uh, I, you know, T, or Hennon Bernal himself has made this claim about how he got hit really hard at the beginning of the fight and then didn't wake up until the fight was over, which, uh, is not a good public relations move for him and strategy <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Cause again, you're just saying, well, I got my ass kicked so bad. Like I didn't even know what was happening until it was over. So clearly as champion, uh, I, I would, I get another shot, right? Which <laughs> seems like the worst possible logic. Now let's fast forward a little bit here. Because I want to talk about the possibility of TJ Dillashaw getting fucked. Uh, because <laughs> of course we, you do. Of I course think, you want to talk about that. I think all the right and clear thinking people of the world already recognize that TJ Dillashaw getting fucked a little bit by having to do this rematch uh, anyway. Uh, is there a scenario by which TJ Dillashaw loses this fight and then we do not do round three between these two guys because you'd think there'd be no way to get around it that that if if Hendon Brow comes out and, and beats TJ Dillashaw on this one you got to do the trilogy the third part of the trilogy but Dominic Cruz who we mentioned earlier returns at UFC 178 against I believe Takeya Mizugaki uh, and if he comes out and blows Mizugaki's doors off then do you have an interesting choice to make if you are UFC matchmaker yeah, I mean, that is a good point. If it, What do you do if TJ Dillashaw goes out there uh, and gets beat up? You know, say he even gets finished this time. Maybe he takes a hard shot in the first round, wakes up in the locker room. Maybe he gets outfoxed. That's right. Maybe. Although, given what we know about Hennon Burrow, I don't know that there's a lot of outfoxing going on there. What is that supposed to mean? I mean, he just seems like a, a dancer, not necessarily a strategist. I knew, I knew it was going to come back to the dancing. I knew it was going to come back to your concern for the overly erotic dance i mean I'm just, we're gonna have to rate this thing tv mature <laughs> okay. i think well you do raise a good point though because then 
what are you supposed to do, right? Because, okay, you can do it a third time again, again, brother. Uh, that seems like it's going to be a little much, especially because people aren't exactly jumping up and down over this one. Uh, maybe, you know, if, if Brow goes back and, and, and takes the title back, people will be a little more interested in it. I don't know. Otherwise, what are you supposed to do? Because you look down the rankings list, you know, he's already, Brow, if he becomes champ again, he's already fought Uriah Faber, uh, Michael McDonald, beat those guys. I mean, you, you have to kind of start reaching way down there uh, to, to get to somebody. Uh, and I think if, if it gives you an easier time of it, if uh, TJ Dillashaw retains the title there, then you can just say, okay, well, we got Rafael Sunsau who has a win over TJ Dillashaw. Book that one and, and play up that angle of it. Uh, because yeah, otherwise, you do start to get into the situation where it would be a total fuck job on TJ Dillashaw if he didn't get get an, another immediate like if he didn't get the same right that Barrow got. Uh, but at the same time, man, it's kind of already a fuck job for him to have to like the, what you want as champion is to be on a big pay per view right where you get a cut of the 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 pay per view proceeds uh, because you got that belt around your waist. They put you on UFC 177, which nobody's going to buy, as I'm sure we'll talk about in the next round. It's like you're not really getting any of the advantages of champ. Yeah, and, you know, TJ Dillashaw losing this rematch, it almost seems like the kind of opportunity that the damn MMA gods are not going to be able to pass up. Because clearly, like you said... The cut and dried, straightforward thing to have happen is for TJ Dillashaw to prove his dominance over Henan Burrow and move on and fight a Sun Sao or Dominic Cruz or whoever is up next. This is MMA we're talking about here, where I feel like the straightforward, cut and dry, good thing for everybody usually does not happen. Well, you know what the tagline for this event is? I don't know. Never trust the odds. Oh, yeah, I did know that, actually. Yeah. I chuckled on, over that myself. Yes, it's on the poster. That's TJ Dillashaw was such a huge underdog last time. This time around, though, the odds, TJ Dillashaw, a slight favorite. He minus, started as a slight underdog, though, I believe. Did he? I, I, minus 150 is around where I'm seeing him now. Uh, so if we're not supposed to trust the odds, I guess that means Henan Burrell this time? What are you going to do? <laughs> You make a compelling point, sir. I'm not sure what we're, how we go about this now. Yeah. Also, I find the, the whole push for that, like just showing a bunch of, uh, people being wrong on camera, talking about how uh, awesome Hen and Brow is and how he's totally going to dominate TJ Dillashaw's ass. I'm sure that must have been really popular with those people. Yeah. Especially Helwani gets it kind of bad in that commercial. Helwani does. Rogan does. Uh, Weird, I don't remember seeing too much of Dana White's cheerleading for Hen and Burrow being uh, spotlighted there. That's Wait a odd. second, was he on, on the Hen and Burrow train leading up to that? I don't recall him making you know, any statements or tweets as as to such. You know, my memory's a little fuzzy on it, but uh, I seem to recall he was a little bit pro Burrow huh. that one. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and check the timeline to, to make sure. Yeah, consult the official record. All right, well, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we will move on to round number three, Ben. At the risk of having friend of the podcast, Danny Boy Downs, refer to me as a self-important guy on the internet, I do have to give an Are You Fucking Kidding Me to Cassius Clay Collard, who we talked about earlier in the show, and frankly, who came out against Matt Holloway, uh, or Max Holloway, I'm sorry, and, uh, and uh, you know, showed up. Better than I think a lot of people thought that he would. Way better. And had the kind of fight where it's clear that he's going to get invited back. But Cassius Clay 
collared. Are you fucking kidding me? That might be the worst nickname I have ever, ever heard. That might be worse than show weather. Wow. Because not only is it a bad nickname, but it, it puts a fresh new spin on how you even do nicknames. Like you don't just take the name of a great fighter and add it to your name like you are a mashup pop punk band from the 90s, right? You know, Tyson Griffin is not running around billing himself as Mike Tyson Griffin. That would be awesome, though. Right? That like, would be, as I, I believe totally Danny that. Downs pointed out on Twitter, Ali Bagautinov is not running around billing himself as Muhammad Ali Bagautinov. But it would be so great. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? Are you kidding me? Well, Chad, my are you fucking kidding me? I'm sure you heard about this one. Uh, the first two fights of the night in Macau. Uh, Macau. <laughs> kind of some questionable split decisions there. So UFC President Dana White takes matters into his own hands and tells Howard Hughes, uh, the judge who was involved in two of those the, those first two fights, uh, to go, quote, grab some beer and some popcorn and go sit down and start watching some fights, not judging them. Wow. The UFC president fired a judge mid-event because he didn't like his scores in the first two fights. Also, when he starts talking about it a little more, it turns out that Dana White actually agreed with at least one of his scores. The first one, uh, the, the, the first fight of the night there, uh, between, uh, Bilana, uh, Dudiva and. Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, who was, who was the Phillips, Elizabeth Phillips? Uh, oh, well, that... why are you asking me, man? I was asleep. Yeah. Well, you were asleep. I, I was chugging coffee and, and just trying to hold on for dear life there. Right in capsules. Uh, but, you know, that one was a, a pretty close fight. Uh, it went for, uh, Dudiva and, uh, but Dana White said that he actually agreed with that. He thought that, that she deserved to win. So did Howard Hughes. So wait, how do you, how do you get rid of him if you actually agree with him? Not to mention that the fight promoter probably just shouldn't be removing officials during events because he doesn't agree with what they're doing. But here's, here's his quote on that. Uh, I know a lot of people, the media included and the fans I saw on Twitter felt that Phillips won the fight, but I thought Milano won the fight, so I disagree. But at the end of the day, who gives a shit what I think? It's the judges. They pick the winner and that's all that matters. Clearly it's not all that matters. They pick the winner and then if you don't like it, you get rid of them. Even though you agreed with him. Are you fucking kidding me? This makes no sense, Chad. I can't you, do that. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Just pulled eccentric billionaire Howard Hughes out of his judging chair. <laughs> and in my mind's eye, I imagine Dana White kind of like shooting his cuffs and going, I guess I got to do this shit myself. And dropping down into the judges chair. <laughs> yeah, you know, why don't we just have Dana White stand there after each fight and he'll, he'll like, you know, stand over there and do like a Emperor Commodus thumbs up, thumbs down thing for, for each fighter. And he can just decide the outcomes all the time. Well, that would be a little over the top, though. Oh, you I, think so? I do agree you with you that idea? it's weird to do that, to remove a judge that during the course of a, an event. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, I know that you remember a few months ago when it was briefly rumored that UFC 174 back on June 14th 
did uh, fewer than 100,000 pay-per-view buys, a fact that was later supplemented by a report from Yahoo's Kevin Ioli to say, if memory serves, that it did something like 115, 125, 100,000 Not great. Uh, pay-per-view buys. Either way you slice it, I think the lowest estimated UFC buy rate since the advent of The Ultimate Fighter. Now we have UFC 177 this weekend, and... I just want to read off for you what the top three fights were on the UFC 174 card, and then we can compare those to the UFC 177 card, because uh, the top three fights at, at 174 were the flyweight title fight between Demetrius Johnson and Ali Baga Utinov, okay. the welterweight contender bout between Rory McDonald and Tyron Woodley, All right. and the light heavyweight fight between Ryan Bader and Rafael Cavalcante. Oh, yeah. You compare that, there. compare that to what you're getting this week. You got TJ Dillashaw in the immediate rematch against Hennon Burrell that we just spent around talking about. Not too bad. Your co-main event is Tony Ferguson against Danny Castillo. <clears throat> what? And then the next, your next fight is the women's bantamweight fight featuring my girl, Betch Cohia against Shayna Baszler. Okay. All right. So. And you only get that one because of uh, the postponement uh, to, uh, UFC 176, right? Which pushed this one. Right. And then your, your, your opener is Ramsey Najem against a guy, Carlos Diego Ferreira, who doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Uh, am I insane or is this thing going to do way, way fewer buys than UFC 174 did? Yeah. I can't see it doing super well because the main event isn't quite enough on its own. As you say, there's not a whole lot of firepower to get you amped up, uh, on the rest of the main card. Plus, look at the schedule recently, right? You had two events this past weekend. Uh, you got pretty much a, a solid uh, month of September where there's just one event right after another. Uh, pretty much every weekend in September, you, you got a, a UFC fight card uh, culminating there with the, the big one that, that everybody's looking forward to, UFC 178. It seems like I think a lot of people are going to look around and say, why, I mean, I'm going to get my fill of MMA here. Why right. spend the money on this one when I know there's going to be one at the end of September that is an absolute must-buy, uh, and there's going to be a, a fight night event every damn weekend between now and then. Uh, here's one where I could take this one off pretty easily, maybe you know, read about it on the internet later, uh, look up look up some GIFs uh, if you can still find those on, on the internet, and... Uh, you know, maybe go out and live a life or at least just keep my money in my pocket. I mean, I, that would seem like a really rational, reasonable, defensible decision, even for some super hardcore fans. So, yeah, I have a hard time seeing how this one moves a ton of units. Bad news for TJ Dillashaw, who is yet again getting fucked. <laughs> well, yeah. And let's, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about how uh, the ballooning, ever-increasing UFC live event schedule has been bad for fans uh, this seems like it could take a turn that's really super bad for the UFC just because of what you said. Like, uh, it's bad for fans if you water down the cards. It's bad for the UFC, which still makes the bulk of its money from pay-per-view buys, uh, regardless of this influx of cash it just got from the Fox deal. It's pretty bad for the UFC if people start to decide, well, I'm not just, I'm just not paying for the, the pay-per-views anymore because there's so many free cards. Uh, I'm just gonna watch those. Not to mention, Look at the free card right after this one, right? Uh, UFC Fight Night 50, I believe it is. The, uh, this is the one that's totally not to counter-program Bellator at all, uh, even though it's on a, a Friday night uh, in Connecticut, just a few miles from where Bellator's event is. 
Uh, your main event for that one, Jacare Souza versus uh, the young vagabond, Gegard Mousasi. Not mad about that. Uh, co-main event, Alistair Overeem against Ben Rothwell. That's just fun. That's just going to be a good time. After that, you got Matt Matrione versus Derek the Derek Lewis, your guy. Hashtag Team Dundas. The, the Black Beast. Uh, and then, if you even want to go under that, you got Joe Lozon versus Michael Chiesa, Nick Lentz uh, doing it again, brother, against Charles Oliveira, and then John Moraga and Justin Scoggins uh, starting off the main card there. I mean, that seems like a more pay-per-view worthy event than this one does. And that one's going to be on free TV next week. I mean, if you're, if you're hungering for some good MMA, sit this one out and you got a good one coming up. You got, you got a real crackerjack next weekend. True. Now let me engage in a little bit of conspiracy talk here. Oh, please. By all means. Is it crazy to suppose or to, Nine Eleven 11 was an inside job. <laughs> you know what? I'm not advocating that position. I've just retweeted the video because I thought it was interesting. <laughs> there are some questions. It raises some questions. Uh, it's pretty hard to ignore how lackluster UFC 177 is, and at least prior to the John Jones injury, how awesome UFC 178 is slash was. Still is. Still is, especially with the addition of Cerrone and Alvarez. I think that that... Uh, you know, doesn't make up for John Jones getting injured, but we knew that they were for a few weeks before that, that they were planning on putting that fight on there anyway. So if that's what they had planned, DC and, and Jones in the main, uh, Don Cerrone and Eddie Alvarez in the co-main, then you got Conor McGregor, then you got Tim Kennedy, Yoel Romero, then you got Kat Zangano returning. Uh, that would have been an over the top awesome card. It's still a pretty good card. Is it crazy to think that the UFC did that on purpose to try to figure out if it was worth it. Huh. Do you know what I'm saying? I thought you're like, saying. Like, does it matter if, if the cards are totally stacked? Right. Will we see a huge difference in pay-per-view like buys? They, they found the low point with 174 and maybe again 177. Like, they wanted to establish a baseline level. Like, this many people are going to buy our shows no matter what. Now let's put on the awesomest card we possibly can at UFC 178, run the numbers and find out maybe it's worthwhile to do that, to like do a, some few, do fewer shows and stack these cards or at least stack every pay-per-view card to try to increase the buy rate. Or is the difference actually going to be kind of negligible? That is an interesting and possibly crazy theory. I think its weakest point is that it, it assumes a lot more forethought and uh, intensive uh, future planning than a lot of what we've seen in putting together some of these pay-per-view cards. It also, uh, I think, assumes that the UFC can do absolutely whatever it wants when it comes to putting on these pay-per-views and, and forming these lineups. And as because of injuries or just who's available to fight and who isn't, I think that we've seen that's not exactly the case. I mean, that's something that the, the matchmaker said when I sat down with them a while back was that how the, one of the big, big mistakes we all make is thinking that these guys are these these fighters are just chess pieces and you can move them around, put them wherever you want, uh, whenever you want, and that's just not the way it works out. And I think that some of that is true. I do think though that whether that was the plan or not, it will that will be the result, right? Like the the UFC, they have numbers. You know what I mean? Uh, they'll be able to look at those numbers, and you will be able to, to tell that. I mean, I always think it's kind of weird though when the UFC seems to like treat its hardcore fan base like. You know, like they're just captives somehow. Like we don't have to really worry about what those people want because what are you going to do? Go watch Bellator? No. 
you're obviously not going to do that. You're going to keep showing up on these Saturday nights all the time, uh, paying for whatever we give you. And then you get some of these cards where you start to see like, okay, if if that's the level of people who are actually going to do that, can you get by? Can you survive on just that? Uh, and I don't really think you can, especially not with the UFC's ambitious world domination plans. Yeah, you're you're probably right that that uh, it's probably more happenstance than anything else. But it's just it's hard to ignore the sheer the stark difference between a 177 and a 178 that existed before uh, John Jones got injured because you know like you said they're not chess pieces but at the same time don't you think you pull Tim Kennedy and Yoel Romero off 178 and book them for 177 instead bump Dominic Cruz against Mizugaki up to the main card like that helps 177 I I don't know if it if it does much to bounce your buy rate but that does make 177 a, a better card I just I don't understand why that they would go to such lengths to uh just stack the shit out of 178 while 177 just looks so bad yeah well i mean you also have to keep in mind though that uh if you start telling people hey remember that fight that uh, we booked you for no, at the i'm end saying of they could have done that from the beginning yeah like, they wouldn't have to change the date on tim kennedy and yoel romero they could have they could have just done that from the beginning yeah well i mean i think that uh a lot of the stuff you like if you go back and you look at the original plans for ufc 177 it was something uh pretty different right i mean wasn't this it was uh, originally Months ago, we were talking about John Jones and Lusty Gusty, uh, and this, the, the whole event was going to be like in Las Vegas. Uh, and then, okay, that's not going to happen. Push that back to UFC 178. I mean, I think that you see like a lot of that stuff starts happening, and then you suddenly you get you arrive at fight night and you think, what the hell is this? What were you guys thinking? Well, they weren't thinking about this at all. Like right. this is kind of Plan B and C. Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably a good point. Uh, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, ben, what is your just saying stuff for this week well chad uh friday night i was watching the tv up late watching the tv watching missy some uh some access tv like I, i've been known to do wait did you do a stay up did you stay up till till you had to start writing the oh god no okay are you insane no i was actually the whole time i was up chiding myself saying i should be in bed right now since i have to get up at 4 a.m uh but had to stay up and watch uh, Montana's own Lloyd Woodard. He fought at Titan Fighting Championship 29. Uh, and he fought, you know, Titan Fighting Championship, as you know, now basically owned by the Alchemist Management Group. Uh, Jeff Aronson, who was the cash for gold guy, uh, who is the money man behind the Alchemist Management Group. Uh, he bought Titan Fighting Championship. I believe he installed uh, Alchemist Manager Lex McMahon as the, the COO. Um, so it's basically a one management company that owns a fight promotion. Uh, and the top two fights, uh, the, the co-main event and the main event, the, the co-main was uh, Alchemist fighter Kurt Holbaugh uh, against uh, Missoula's own Lloyd Woodard. Uh, and then the main event was Alchemist fighter Mike Ricci against George Soteropoulos. Um, now, I'm not saying that they're doing anything untoward, although I do think it is a conflict of interest for a management group to be able to own a a fight promotion that then negotiates with itself basically to sign fighters to deals i'm just saying i don't think i would want to fight a guy on a fight promotion where his management owned it i'm just saying i don't know if i would feel great about that if i were a fighter i think i think i might might rather just you know fight on some promoter's card who doesn't really have a clear financial stake in the dude i'm fighting i'm just saying huh just saying interesting Just just me being crazy there ben this week i'm just saying and you know what it's almost a tip for the well-rounded fight fan this Uh-oh. week from me uh, to the 
co-main event listeners out there who might be thinking about procreating, uh, having a child, maybe you have a son, maybe you have it in your mind that you want your son to turn out to be a badass wrestler. I've noticed something throughout my coverage of mixed martial arts and also in my previous career as a local news reporter where I typed in a lot of statewide wrestling results. And that is, Ben, if you want your kid to be a badass wrestler, you got to give him a name that limits his options. Okay. You got to give him a name where he can pretty much only be a badass wrestler or like a rodeo cowboy. You got to name him Chaz Skelly. <laughs> right? Because when you type in a lot of these wrestling results, you, you find very few badass wrestlers that are named Ben Folks. You find very few How badass wrestlers that are named Chad Dundas. You find a lot of badass wrestlers that are named stuff like Reed and Chance and Cody, Dakota, you know? You're basically going with kind of a boy named Sue kind of theory here? I'm, I'm saying if you can come up with a verb name, Tracker, that's good. Hunter, Ooh, Tracker, that'll, good that'll get you a badass wrestler. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't name him something where he could go be a doctor. You right. name him Johnny Hendricks with one N. Like, no, nobody's go. going to see the Dr. Johnny Hendricks with one N. No, they're just one, saying. They want to know where that other N is hiding out. Chaz Skelly. What's this guy got to hide? He only has one N. Pretty much nothing that dude could be besides a professional fighter, right? Well, I'm now it reminds me how disappointed I am that you backed out of your, I thought, brilliant plan to name your daughter Dr. Dentist Dundas because that, I think, was a, a shoe-in for something awesome to happen. Yeah, get, that would get her on the wrestling team yeah. and probably get me a, a psychotherapy bill from later in, in life. You know, Greg Jackson's wife actually has a, a theory about um, like – nerdy fighter names really? she thinks that there's there's an uncommon uh number of fighters who have like kind of geeky names that then made them have to stand up for themselves i mean donald donald melvin guillard come on uh, maybe, maybe that's something we can look into i don't know as for as for this week though uh that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast we're going to be back next week to tell you all the stuff that happened at ufc 177 and look ahead to that what is that jacare souza gegard musasi the next weekend yeah, that's next weekend. Awesome. Matt Matrion going to be up in there too. We'll talk we'll talk that up. Uh as for right now though, we are done, we are through, we are out. What about jars of clay collar? Oh, okay. I you know, then the Make them pay clay collar. You know how I feel about climbing. All day clay. I I'm, I'm not these aren't even written down. I'm just coming up with these right now. Yeah, no, it's amazing. It's